Good morning, Lindsay Avenue. It's good to see everyone here today. It's good to see a couple of new faces. We're glad you're here and hope you will come back and worship with us again at any opportunity that you have. I want to remind everyone that in addition to Bible classes on Sunday morning, which we are just getting started again, we also have Bible class on Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. A group of people will meet here at the building, and if that's a problem or that's hard to do in the middle of the week, we also do it over Zoom. And so if you would be interested in either being here Wednesday night at 7 o'clock, come on. Or if you're wanting to tune in and study with us Wednesdays at 7, then uh, you can reach out to Jeff, me, or Robbie, and we'll make sure that you have the link in order to do that over your phone uh, or over a laptop. We've been studying following Paul through Greece, and uh, many of the lessons have lots of pictures. So hopefully that makes it uh, more lively than it might otherwise be. But uh, we're glad you're here. Hope you will come back. Now, this morning we're going to talk about... Falling into temptation, temptation, that, that's something that affects each and every person in the room. It's not something that is merely a problem that affects young people. Over time, what temptations pose problems to each of us may change. Something that's a temptation to a 13-year-old may not be a temptation to a 93-year-old but not always is that the case. Things may change, but they may not. So it's a common problem to every man and woman, whether young or old. So let's take a look at some verses from the Bible about temptation and what we may be able to do about that in order to avoid it. Picking up with 1 Timothy chapter 6, from verses 6 through 12, we read, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. Great gain. The word for contentment means self-sufficient, not dependent on outward things. Usually when we think of someone or in a circumstance of being self-sufficient, we think about, at least I have always, somebody sitting on a big pile of money tend to think of someone who is self-sufficient as someone that's got a bank account with more zeros coming after a number than you can count. Rich person is going to be self-sufficient. They don't need anything else. The Bible doesn't present things that way. It presents someone as being self-sufficient with godliness. Godliness. Godliness with contentment. Being happy or pleased with what you may have is in fact great gain. Great gain is not the stock market going through the roof. Great gain is learning to be content with whatever we have in a godly manner. Why is it so important to focus on contentment, being godliness, with following after God? Well, look what he says next, continuing on in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We brought nothing into this world, and it's certain that we can carry nothing out. You know, I recall a few births being made, and I've read about births that have been made. I've never read about a child being born that being born from its mother had a checkbook in its hand. I mean, Matt, you never heard about that, have you? I mean, or a gold coin wrapped in the palm, right? The baby comes out crying, 
drops, you know, gold coin, which is what, $1,800 or something like that. Right. Or, or anything. I mean, when children are born, they come screaming into the world totally, completely, as we would say, buck naked. They have nothing. They come into the world with nothing. Well, that's exactly the way we go out. Oh, we may dress up someone in fine clothes. We often do at a funeral. You may put fancy things into the casket if they're being buried in the casket. But the person itself is already gone. All that's being buried is the shell of that, what that person used to be. We come into the world with nothing. Can't take anything out. You can't. That's one reason why having contentment or focusing on contentment and with a pile of money or whatever else may be viewed as bringing security is not going to be the way things are. As I say here, there aren't any bank accounts on either side. There's no bank account before we come into the world and there's no bank account that's going to help as we go out of the world. And so Paul here says, having food and clothing with these, we shall or should be content. You know, it's always interesting when you talk to people in various situations in life, it's always simply, if only I had this, then I would be happy. Well, if you have somebody that already has this, suppose it's, I don't know, suppose it's a certain amount of money. You talk to somebody that has that amount of money, you know what you'll often hear? Well, if only I had this, then I would be content. And it's true all the way up and down the list. They may not have the struggles or the concerns that somebody that doesn't have one of the different layers, but contentment cannot be found by chasing after things. It just can't, because there's always some other thing that someone has that people are going to want. It can only come in many ways, Paul says here, by escaping being a slave to stuff. It's only when we find our real wealth in friendship with people and when we realize our most precious possessions actually being a friend with God that we have any hope at all of being content. But it's that desire for things that's going to often get us into trouble. But those who desire to be rich, desire to be rich, fall into temptation and a snare, and into it many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. Desire here is to have a purpose, to be minded. People want to be rich. Well, if you're wanting to be rich, you have a desire to be rich, you're focused on acquiring something, and people are often simply an obstacle something that got in the way of what you were wanting. As desire to be rich is a thirst which you really cannot satisfy because there's always more money somewhere. And if I chase all that money, you know, you sometimes you see a bumper sticker, it would say, the one who dies with the most toys, what does this bumper sticker usually say? Wins. You're dead. And you can't take all that stuff with you. So, how is that winning? How is that winning? Paul says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money. Not necessarily having money. That's not necessarily a root of evil, but the love of money. 
which for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Usually money is what people would look for to have security. If only I had this money, I'd be secure. And yet so many people that have money do what? They barricade themselves behind tall walls, big alarms, big dogs inside the fence, or guards that have a lot of guns. They don't seem all that secure when I look at them. The only true security is going to be found in the love of Jesus. Now, look at what it says next here in this next passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says, Therefore let the one who thinks that they stand take heed lest they fall. When you think, I'm safe, I'm secure, I'm not going to be bothered or worried about anything, that's often the worst possible thing to be thinking because that's when you're going to have, to have your trouble. If you think you're secure about something, the greatest risk to all of us many times will be when we think we're not going to be tempted by something because then you're going to have something come out of the blind spot. It'd be like driving a car and never checking your mirrors. Right? If you're never checking your mirrors, then you don't have any clue what's sneaking up on you. Uh, I will credit my wife on a trip we had several months ago. Uh, we were driving on the interstate, very few cars on it except for that big one in the lane in front of me that it seemed as if I wasn't noticing I was coming up on rather fast. It's not like we were in tons of traffic. I know you remember that. It wasn't like it was tons of traffic, but Right? I wasn't seeing what was right there. Because the interstate had a few cars on it, I'm just, it's like, I'm going to, that car get out of my way. I don't know if I saw the car. Maybe it was just, I, I don't know what it was. But when you don't see sometimes what's right in front of you, it's a very dangerous situation. We avoided a dangerous situation because she spoke up. I'm very thankful for that. No one is above temptation. No one's immune. I don't care whether you're 93 or 13. You're not immune. I'm not immune. No one is immune from temptation. And Paul says here, continuing there in 1 Corinthians 10, that no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. You're not the first one that's been in this circumstance. I've got this terrible temptation to do something. Nothing like this has ever happened before in the history of the world. Yes, it has. Yes, it has. And the point he makes next is, is that God is faithful. He's not going to get you in a situation that you can't get out of. There's always an escape. There's always a way out if you're wanting to look for it. I loved Robbie's picture that she put on Facebook for the lesson today. As I recall, Robbie, tell me if I'm wrong. He had a sign on it that said temptation with an arrow. Didn't it have an arrow pointing this way? Right? Temptation is that way. Am I being rather smart or foolish? If I head that way, wow, temptation's over there. I gotta go check it out. That would be probably a pretty foolish thing to do because if temptation's over that way, I really maybe I'll consider going this way. What if the sign said, you know, angry bear is right around the corner? Let's go take a look. Hello? What do angry bears tend to do? They leave pieces of people behind. Right? So why do I want to go, I want to get a selfie with an angry bear. 
then what? There'll be a selfie of my arm sitting over in the corner. Temptation is worse than an angry bear. Especially if you're trying to go to it. Rather than running away from temptation, rather than trying to escape from temptation, it's almost as if people today want to take an Uber to go find temptation. Where's, where's all that fun happening? Let me go. You know, I, I said in class today, my dad used to say, nothing good happens after midnight. Now, maybe sometimes, right? I mean, maybe you're playing cards and it's 12.30. Maybe that's not a, a, a problem. But most of the things that are going to get us in all sorts of trouble are predictable. Temptation sometimes does have a sign that says, here it is. And we often look at the sign and go following off to it. But Paul here says, if there's a temptation, there's a way out. We simply have to be awake enough to look for it. You can handle anything if your mind's in the right spot, if you want to get out of it. There's always a way to you know, take the plane instead of landing right where you are and veer off and go around again and look for a better place to land. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers and sisters, if a man or a woman is overtaken in a trespass, they've gotten themselves involved into some sinful situation, they're involved in doing some things or have done some things that were wrong or bad, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. You know, in a group of people our size, we're going to have people here that will make mistakes. We do. That's the way life is. We all make choices every day. None of us are perfect to avoid making bad choices. And so what do the rest of us do? Take that person, throw them out the door, and tell them never to come back. Well, if we did that, how many people would we have here in a few weeks? Very few. Paul says, you who are spiritual, you who have not gotten into this bad circumstance yet, or this time, restore such a one in a spirit of condemnation, a spirit of hatred, a spirit of anger. That's not the word he uses. In a spirit of gentleness. Because most of the time, people who have gotten into something know they've gotten into it. And what they're looking for is love and care and help get out of it. Brothers and sisters are going to be overtaken. None of us are immune from this. Restore with gentleness, not condemnation. Why does he tell the spiritual people to restore with gentleness? Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Maybe it's Job over here this week. Could be me next to How would I want to be treated? If I were the one, I might be the one next time. The goal is not to take a big stick and beat somebody on the, on the head and drive them into the ground. The goal is to tell people, you know, yes, that was a bad choice, but we're all in this together. And the goal is to help each other not make at least the same mistake next time. 
He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. All of us have some sort of burden. We all have something deep down that we struggle with. We often don't tell people. We often don't tell people, but we do. Most of us will have something we struggle with that bothers us. Paul says to bear the burdens each of us have to share them. Why don't we share them? Why don't we share these burdens? I think it's because we're always afraid we're going to get beaten on the head by people that haven't shared what their problem, their burden is. And when we bear one another's burdens, when we treat people nicely, when we help restore somebody, bring them back to God, help them avoid the mistake again, we fulfill the law of Christ. I think we've got some work to do for all of us, myself. This is the verse that Howell read for us before the verses uh, over in the book of James. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. It's God's fault I'm in this situation. God brought me here. God's doing this to me. Don't do that. Don't say that. Because God himself cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he see himself tempt anyone. So when I'm being tempted, when I see that sign of temptation, when I recognize I am in a situation, how did I get here? Each one is tempted when he or she is drawn away by his or her own desires and is enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. We do this to ourselves. We do. And the image here I always like to bring up is the idea of a fish coming up to eat a worm. How do you fish? How do you fish? Do you throw the hook in there with nothing on it? Phil, is that what you've done to fish? If so, we're going to be pretty poor fishermen, aren't we? Why didn't? You know, why not throw a blender into the the uh, lake? I mean, you know, to fish and to catch a fish, it's got to be something on the end of the hook. The fish wants. The fish has to see the little wiggly worm or the red and yellow and flashy lure that's on there, something enticing that they want. If we saw sin the way it really is, which is ugly, which is hurtful and painful, we wouldn't want it. So how is sin presented? It's presented like that wiggly worm, which the fish seems to want. I don't really care for wiggly worms. If you like wiggly worms, you know, eat as many as you want. But it's what looks appealing to the fish. That's how you get the fish to bite it. And something that's appealing to you, that lures you and entices you, may not affect me. And what affects me may not affect you. That's why it says each one of us is tempted when we are lured and enticed. And it may be different for all of us. But once you bite on that hook, Right? What happens? The bobber starts bouncing on the water, and the fisherman just goes, one yank is often all it takes, and that fish is mine. I'm going to be cooking up some fish in the skillet tonight. Well, who's the fisherman here? It's the devil. The devil is the one that throws that temptation out there, that thing that may lure you, lets it dangle. Wow, that looks pretty good. Chomp. 
Once you bite, they're often on the hook and consequences are going to come. It looks good at first to that fish, but doesn't turn out well many times for that fish. Look at 1 John 2, 15-17. John the Apostle here writing toward the end of his life, looking back on how things have gone for a number of years, says to people who were following Jesus, do not love the world or the things in the world. Remember that thing we started out with? That you know, we brought nothing into the world. You can't take anything with you out of the world either. Then why on earth should I love the world or the things in the world? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in it. If I love the world more than I love people, or if I love people more than I love God, I've got things I don't like. If you see someone who's thirsty, but you love the dollar bill that's in your pocket that might could buy a cup of water or a bottle of water, you've got things out of way. If I love someone more than I love God, so that when that person is in my life, they suggest don't go to worship, don't come to worship God, don't do what God wants to do, do something else got my life out of whack. Do not love the world or the things in the world. For why? Why should I not love the world? John tells us. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh is one broad category. I mean, things that we have desires for that have their proper place, but we go after them in the wrong situation. Lust of the flesh. That's what we're talking about right there. That's of the world. You shouldn't be loving things that are in the world. Lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. The eyes can want stuff too. The body, the flesh can want things. The eyes can want things. Or the pride of life. I, I want people to look at me and all I have accomplished. I want to be the big shot. I want to be the celebrity. I want people to know what I have done. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. These things are not of the Father, but are of the world. The world is passing away. The lust of it is passing away. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Remember, dying with the most toys does nothing other than leave a pile of stuff for somebody else to deal with. But dying with the love of God in your life, dying with love of people in your life as you love God, loving others is going to be something that abides and lasts forever. The things that we are tempted by are temporary. They are not permanent. Mark 14, 38, Jesus says, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Sometimes the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I want to do what God wants me to do, but I end up doing what I want to do. Which side is winning your battle? Which side is winning mine? Is my mind controlling what I'm doing, or is my mind losing the battle? Luke 22, 40, Jesus said, it says, when he came to the place, he said to them, to his disciples, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
When's the last time that we prayed to avoid temptation? If I keep making the same mistake, if I keep making the same kinds of mistake, have I prayed to God for strength? Have I reached out to a brother or sister to say, I need help? Remember where we are to bear one another's burdens? The only way you can do that is to share the burdens with brothers or sisters. Peter here says in 1 Peter 5 8, be sober minded, be watchful, be serious thinking, be, be serious in our approach to life. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You know, it's one thing if a lion's hiding in the woods and catches you unaware. But if you notice, how does the lion, the devil, describe you? Roaring, right? And tell you, if I'm out in a jungle or I'm on a safari and I hear roar or whatever, whatever noise the lion makes, am I going to run? Ooh, what was that noise? That sounded like a lion. I want to go see it. Chalk. The only way to avoid stuff like this is to be paying attention enough and run away. Adversary, the devil is going about like a lion who is not hiding. He's not hiding. We should be able to see and avoid if I'm watching. So am I watching? God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There's a good enough reason right there to be humble. What's this point of being humble? Recognizing that I might very well be tempted and do something I shouldn't do. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he, God, cares for you. When we fail in sin, we should cast our cares, our, our, our problems, our sorrows on God because he cares for us. What a wonderful, wonderful thought. Do I face problems? Do I have things that worry me? Do I have things that bother me? Do I have regrets? Lay them on God and let God handle them for you because he cares about you. He cares about me. When we fall, when we give in to temptation, when we do things we shouldn't have done, we do have a way up and out. My, my little children, these things I write to you, 1 John 2, so that you may not sin. We should not sin. We should not give in to temptation. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The idea of an advocate is someone like a lawyer who pleads someone's case, who's an ally, who's there to help. He's a comforter, but he's someone that strengthens us. In this case, Jesus is pleading with God for the pardon of our sins, the forgiveness of our sins. In the widest sense, Jesus is, of course, a helper, an assistant, a comforter. My little children, again, these things I write to you that you may not sin. Jesus himself is the sacrifice that pays the sins for the whole world, not just for ours only. He who says he abides in Jesus ought himself to walk just as he walked. Look. If we say we're a follower of Jesus, we should do our best to act like Jesus. We should do our best to step in the same steps that Jesus took. How did Jesus live? What did Jesus do? 
Remember the little armbands? This will show my age. What would Jesus do? WWJD? Rather than what would he have done, what did he do? What he did was love so much that he was willing to die for you and me. He loved God and he loved me. Me. Enough to die for me. I have been the only one who had ever given in to temptation. If I had been the only one who had ever chosen to do what I wanted to do, Jesus would have died just for me. Since all of us gathered here this morning and those of us who are watching from home, since all of us have at one point or another chosen to do what I wanted to do, what we wanted to do instead of what God wanted to do, what that means is Jesus died for you just the same way he did for me. Think about that. The eternal son came to this earth, lived a perfect life and died so that you, so that I would have forgiveness for the choices we have made that were wrong. When I've given in, I've bitten that worm on the hook. Worm looks pretty ugly. Bid it anyway. So the question this morning is this. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus, then you are heading toward a future where all these things that you consider to be important are going to be left behind for someone else to deal with. What's important is becoming a follower of Jesus so that when that day comes when you are going to die, Day is coming for me at some point, then we will be in the arms of Jesus because we will have been one of his children. The way to do that is to recognize your sinful circumstance, and we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have, every one of us in this room. We need to commit to working to turn our lives away from living for ourselves and living for God. And Jesus also said, if you believe and he who believes and is baptized, immersed in water, will be raised to have their sins forgiven. Paul says to be raised to walk in newness of life. That's what we need to do if we're not yet a follower of Jesus. If we are a follower of Jesus and I continue to live for myself, I haven't been following in his footsteps, then the way to get in a better position with your life is to come and open up and share those burdens with your brothers and sisters and we will gladly pray that God will not only help you but that God will help each of us as we seek to live for Him. If either of those situations describes you today, your opportunity is right now. Right now as we sing this song.